Well, let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to the letter of James. We're going to turn to the letter of James. And we're going to do an introduction tonight and talk about things and then set a course for the weeks to come. And uh, I'm also going to be doing both when I get into Timothy on Sunday morning and on midweek. I'm going to be doing some other types of teaching interspersed in between these letters. I want to teach some out of the Old Testament, teach some of the stories of Genesis and some of the prophets and some different things of that nature. And then I also want to teach some of the wisdom literature and the Psalms as it relates to the gospel. So we're going to be digging back into in between those areas uh, moving forward throughout the summer. Let's pray as we start this letter tonight. Father, we are thankful to be able to get together and we are glad to fulfill that which you've commanded us to do, to assemble, and Lord, to gather under your word and to put the family of faith that we are in covenant with, Father, as, as a top priority in our lives. And Lord, I pray for the body at large. I pray for those who work midweek and are not able to be in fellowship. But Lord, we are glad that we even have this opportunity. We thank you that we have the Lord's Day and all the other opportunities that we have, Father, that you have ordained for us. And so, Lord, I am in desperate need of the gospel. Uh, just in reality, Father, I am, I am burdened and overwhelmed. And, Father, I am, my mind is occupied. And so I thank you for the reprieve of being able to open your word together with those that we love and look and be encouraged by the gospel. And so as we start this letter, Father, I pray that you would help us to see it for what it's intended to be used for, to encourage us, to admonish us, Lord, and to warn us about what true faith is in the context of our lives together as a body. And so we are praising you for your glorious grace and that we are set apart in Christ alone and that his righteousness is ours and, Father, that all that we have in life and in all that we have eternally is in him and nowhere else to be found. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. The letter of James. The letter of James. There's probably not been a more controversial letter in the New Testament uh, historically as the letter of James. And there's a lot of reasons for it. And for those of you who are students of language or students of antiquity or writing um, and letters and, and things of that nature. You may be familiar with some of the debates and some of the arguments, but by and large it doesn't matter. And I'm going to say that it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. Uh, any of our children could pick up the letter of James and by the Spirit of God they can read it and understand it and God can teach them through it and can admonish and encourage them in its teaching and in its commands and so it doesn't matter that we don't have a lot of agreement in history and a lot of agreement in higher critics uh, to its authenticity or even its authorship or even its purpose or even its genre some people say it's not a letter at all but as we open it we do know that it is the word of God for God has ordained it to be here in the list of letters throughout the days of the apostles, and um, I stand on the shoulders of people who are not brilliant, but people who are humble, 
in the context of my understanding of how they came to figure these things out. And ultimately, I stand on this in the way of its authorship, that it is the brother of Jesus, James. And I also stand on the fact that I believe it was written somewhere in the mid to late 40s, not during the time of John's writings toward the end of the century, but in the mid to late 40s. I also know that it is not your typical letter. It's not your salutation, your greeting, your conclusions, but yet it is written as a letter, and it's not written in the context of a lot of intimacy, though it is intimately expressive. So as we get into it, I want you to think about these things because here's something that I find that's, that's true for me, and it may or may not be true for you, but that is that when we start studying something, when I start studying something new, it's easy for me to get bogged down into some of the details of what history has said or what other people have said. It's also seems like supernaturally when I get into a new teaching and it takes me about three weeks on average to prepare to start a new teaching. It's not just like you can pick it up. You have to get ahead by several weeks in order to continue to preach weekly so that you can have the time that's, that it takes to, to prepare. But it never fails when I start something new and I begin to teach it. There's always going to be out of the woodwork individuals who will come and refute what we're trying to say or begin to say, oh, you know what's really cool about the book of James or you know what's really cool about the letter to the Romans or you know what's really cool about Hebrews is and they'll give you some anecdotal things that aren't true. Uh, that aren't even historically accurate whatsoever, uh, and then they want to debate these things, and so then it boggles your mind. It divides your mind in a lot of ways and puts you in the place to where you're thinking, well, man, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But the Bible is clear enough. This teaching is going to be very, very clear as we go through it. I'm going to take a long time to go through James. I'm not going to read large portions like I usually do on midweek. I'm going to exposit it as I feel the Lord would have me do. And as we go through it, if it takes a year, it takes a year, and we will be patient with that. And the reason for that is because for some of us, we know this already, so sorry to be redundant, but there is a standard in which Christian scholars and theologians have argued that James is not authentic and James is not canonical. That means it should not be, it should not, it is not scripture, should not be included in the measure of scripture, the canon. Because he contradicts the teaching of Paul in relation to justification. But there's something that we need to understand about writing, and that is that words in and of themselves are not necessarily defined equivocally. Words are also not heresies, but the meanings behind which these words are used can be heresy. The meaning behind which these words can use can be wrong or right. And honestly, if we are both thinking the same thing, but using different terms, we can both be right. So we have to get to the bottom of what we're talking about when we're talking together and we seem to be at odds. The same thing is true. We can be using the same term and both think that the other person is thinking like we are. For example, like justification. Somebody may say, well, justification. It is that reality that is true forensically or judicially where a man or woman, the elect person who has been granted faith, is set before the Lord with a sinless record. They are justified before God through the person of Christ. 
And that would be a correct definition. But there is something also that we know as a semantic range. And the ranges of words and their meanings change about every three to four years. Depends on the culture. After a decade, a word can completely mean something different than what it meant 10 years before. After 50 years, it could absolutely be non-existent in the vernacular. And after 100 years, if it comes back up, it could have no relationship whatsoever to its original meaning. So when we think about certain terms like justified or justification, just because we know what it means in a forensic sense and in a spiritual sense and as it relates to the gospel and the work of God and redemption for his people, it doesn't necessarily mean that James was writing the same thing. As a matter of fact, James would be the first person to use that term in some sense before Paul wrote Romans, of course. But as we get here, you'll see. I'll help you see. And the Lord will help you see. And most importantly, you will help you see. All together as we read it. I would encourage you to read the letter of James at least once a week before midweek. Read it before, read it after, it doesn't matter. Read it twice, it doesn't take very long. So that it can be fresh on your mind as we go through it together. So let us start. And we're going to read the first 15 verses. No, we're going to read the first 18 verses. James, a servant of God, of of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humility, or his humiliation. Because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no movement or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In verse 19, he begins to give some commands. He begins to give some commands. So as you hear just the first 18 verses of this letter, you automatically understand what I'm saying when I said that it doesn't follow a natural, intimate epistle. 
It's not like, hey, everybody, this is James, and uh, I love you in the Lord, and greetings, and so-and-so sends greetings, and there's a couple of things I want you to know. You have been born. I want to remind you of this, and then I want you to remind you. No, he goes right in, in some sense, a poetic way, and in, in another sense, he almost sounds like he's writing a proverb. Matter of fact, the disjointedness of this as a letter is one of the reasons so many people reject it as canonical. Instead of just reading it and knowing that God is sovereign in his measure of his word, they like to reject it because it doesn't fit the pattern. Well, James is a different guy. He writes here in this very, I mean, you're talking five or six years after the Lord ascended. Not necessarily that far away. Five or six years ago, I remember what I was doing in some general way. I can look back and go, oh yeah, I remember that. It's not like I have to think back when I was 14 and call my mom and say, do you remember this? And look at some pictures to tickle my memory. No, this was a fresh writing. And one of the things that James does is he employs some of the, some of the writing styles that were popular in his day. Why would he do that? Because we speak how we hear and we write how we read. That's a common thing. I've said this many times over is that I can listen to saxophonists, non-performing artists, but I can listen to saxophonists, which you'd call your intermediate professional or whatever, but you're non-famous guys, and I can tell you by how they do certain phrasings and how they breathe and how they use certain terms as to who their influences are. Same thing when you hear people sing. You can hear people sing covers of certain songs, and you can almost tell when they're listening to a certain vocalist more than another. Just like our children, and they even can embrace and adopt speech impediments or mispronunciations of our own vernacular, of our own words, misuses of grammar. We just adopt it. So James adopted, and he would, just like everyone in that century, just like everyone today, has adopted and molded themselves as to how they speak, write, and interact. Let's don't even get into behavior, as we talked about Sunday. So James is given some instruction. And the letter of James has a lot of commandments in it. I'll be honest with you, this is one of these letters that if you're uncomfortable with being told what to do by God, then it's going to be a real rough ride for you. That's why we need to realize that this is not an evangelistic letter whatsoever. There is no evangelism in this letter at all. It is written to who? Look at this, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. To the twelve tribes. What is that? That's a Jewish way of saying to the Jewish folks. The church of Jerusalem. Who at the time in the early to mid 40s or the mid to late 40s especially. Were being persecuted so badly. They had to leave their own homes to go out into the wilderness. And go out into other communities. And to transfer or transplant themselves into Gentile territory. Because their relationship with the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Had ostracized them from their own people. Just like Paul's writing to the Hebrews that we just finished. 
So here's James, a Jew, writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, was it exclusively Jewish audience? No. I'm sure Gentiles were mixed in there, just like Jewish people were mixed into the Gentile church at Rome. But ultimately, this is to help us understand that this letter is written at the occasion when people were being persecuted severely for their relationship with the gospel. For being found in Christ. And it's interesting that we all hear, especially social media, hey, 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 the church is being persecuted. Folks, the church of the United States of America is not being persecuted. It's not persecution to be told you can't serve, you can't have a service inside. That's not persecution of the Lord Jesus. When they chop your heads off and watch your children burn in front of you, then come say persecuted. When they take your house from you because you are a Christian, even when you're underground, they still pursue you, that's persecution. And what do we do when that happens? We do not return revile with revile. But we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, righteously. And there was a problem, and these people were experiencing it. And then as they were together, there was a lot of other problems. And see, that's, James is going to deal with the problem of persecution. And he's going to deal with the problem of interaction. And he's going to deal with the problem of arrogance. The problem of a superiority complex. The problem of the elitism of rich people. The problem of the covetousness of poor people. And then he's going to give some general instruction. So here, we don't have a strict theological treatise on specific things. When we see a sentence, especially written in the flavor in which James writes, we should not create an entire proposition that leads us to an entire theology. We should check that theology based on the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Maps. We should look at it. And we should come to the realization that when we see something taught or commanded, it does not contradict anything else that was taught or commanded, so that when we see what may appear as a contradiction, we should whack ourselves in the face like a face palm and go, Oh, I'm the dumb butt. And then we should realize that there is a range in which James is using a term that is much different than how Paul or John or Jesus may have used a term. Because it does not contradict. So here, these servant, this slave of Christ and of the Lord James, the brother of Jesus, is the only logical person to have written this letter at the time it was written. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy. Important parenthetical here. My brothers, and that is a gender-neutral word. It doesn't mean men. It just means my siblings in Christ, brothers and sisters. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So here is command number one. He's like, Hi, I'm James, a slave of the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. Greetings. Count it all joy when you face all kinds of trials, my siblings. All right, so what is inclusive here? What's the command? To count it all joy. Now, how many times have you ever heard that from the mouth of someone trying to cheer you up? 
Is it a cheer up? Is this a fortune cookie? Is this a cheerleading thing? Is this, a, is this an amen corner? Count it all joy. I mean, is that something that we do? And then when we're told to do, we go, you know what? I wasn't counting it all joy. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> now, does it really solve the problem? No, it doesn't solve the problem. It's to command us to do that which is antithetical to the problem. So we're to count it all joy when we get a new car. Psst, not a problem. Count it all joy when we find a new spouse. Or find a spouse, not a new spouse. That was stupid. I just saw the new couple and I thought, ah, newlywed. When we're newlywed. Count it all joy. Yeah, not a problem. Count it all joy 20 years later when there's problems. Count it all joy when the transmission goes out of the new car. Count it all joy when you have a new child. Yay! Count it all joy when he's a devil. Count it all joy when everything's going well in the world. I'm in good health. Count it all joy when I get a terminal report from my doctor. Count it all joy when the church is running well and everybody's happy with one another. Count it all joy when the knuckleheads come in and stir up problems. Count it all joy when everybody loves my Facebook post. Count it all joy when I'm called effeminate. Count it all joy. See, it's easy to do it in the good times, but the command here is to do it in the hard times. It is a command. And God himself is commanding it through his, his apostle. Count it all joy. And this great reminder of why we can count all things joy. Now what does that even mean? Do we even say that? Count it all good. It's all good, man. We're taking a tally. We're taking a measurement. We're making a judgment. And we're saying to ourselves, here's the experience. Here is the environment. Here is what's happening right now. Wow, this is not an opportunity for happiness and gladness and joyfulness and thankfulness and celebration. This is an opportunity for revenge, aggravation, sobbing, depression, throwing ourselves off a short tower, or whatever it may be. This is not an opportunity for joy. And so James is saying, by the command of Christ, as you calculate all the experiences that you are now having, come to the tally of joy. They all add up to joy. They all add up to joy. This isn't the first time we've seen this. But what's the big deal? I mean, why in the world would he say something like this? Because this very next thing, the audience here, and this adjective, inclusive of this pronoun, brothers, we know that this is something that is very intimate. This is not just, yo, what's up, bro? You're my man. You're my guy. You're my dude. This is not brothers in humanity. This, these are brothers in the Lord. These are those who have been granted by the Spirit of God the disposition to know Christ and to know the Father who sent Him, and understand with all the saints the joy of the Lord in salvation, and they are together as an intimate family. And they are being persecuted as one. And they have made themselves a home in a land that was not their own. In what would be very akin to the wilderness days of the Exodus, without the resources. So now we have all of these people who are brothers in the faith and this intimate truth of the gospel salvation that is theirs in Christ is the centerpiece of how now God can command through this apostle, count it all joy. 
because you are my brothers. You are my sisters. We are together in, the, in, in Christ's work. So count all of these things joy. What things? When you meet trials of various kinds. And there were a lot of different trials. For some people, you know, wandering around the countryside, going place to place and living on the land is not a problem. That's a trial for me. It's not good. There's not enough cleanliness. There's not enough sanitary surfaces. I can't do that without losing my mind, folks. There's nothing I can do about it. It is impossible. The only thing that would keep me going is knowing, oh, when I get through, I'm going to bathe in some alcohol. But some people, it's not a trial at all. To other people, it would, it would not be a trial to walk away from their home and from their car and from their job and just travel in the wilderness. Living off the land, it would not be a problem. For others, it would be like, oh, no, I don't want to leave my house. I don't want to leave my car. I don't want to leave my stuff. I don't want to leave the pictures of my family. It's a little tiny trial in comparison to the reality of eternity. It's nothing. It's idols. So sometimes that would be the trial. Others would be the trial of, okay, I'm staying here because I'm not going to get involved in this Jesus stuff. And I'm staying in Jerusalem. And then you're leaving. So the divided household, imagine the divided household where you had to go and live in the dispersia, with the dispersia, while the rest of your loved ones stay behind to continue to be Jews, faithful to the end. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. You know one of the biggest identifiers, that's not the right word, you know one of the biggest punch in the guts I think it is in our world today myself included is that as Christians we complain about too much and complaining is the antithesis of joy because joy by design according to the scripture is to thank God and be thankful for God you know we already read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change Count it all joy. Because God has ordained the trials. He has given them to us and, it, and they are good gifts. The trials are good gifts. The trials are perfect gifts. If not, then God is not sovereign. If God has established even discipline in the life of, all, of His children and it is not good and perfect, then God is not sovereign. And see how weak our faith is. We may have theological things in our mouths and minds to the point that we can argue with the devil himself who is wiser than us all. But if we don't understand the simplicity of childlike faith that rests in the sovereignty of God, we are living a miserable life. A miserable life. God has ordained in His sovereignty for our joy. How is that joy? I will give you my joy, Jesus says. Not like the world gives. I will give you my peace. Not like the world gives. I will give you my joy and my peace. It shall be yours. How did Jesus have joy and peace in the garden? How did Jesus have joy and peace on the cross? Not my will but yours, Father. 
the promises of the Father to Jesus Christ the Son established the reality of what was certain against the backdrop of what was temporal from which the eternal glory would spring. And then we've been promised that. So in verse 3, there's a reminder of that. See, James is not trying to teach these people this. They know that. For you know. You see that? I started, I started just to preach an entire hour on that phrase. For you know. For you know. What is it that you know? Do you know the gospel? Or can you just recite somebody else's gospel that you took off their website? You know the gospel or do you just know some gospel propositions that you just keep throwing out? Can you intertwine the gospel into any conversation about any subject at any time? Can you express the gospel in different ways from your own mouth, from your own heart, and from your own words? The way you speak and the way you read and the way you understand, the way you communicate, are you, can you communicate the gospel in your voice? Not with your vocal cords, but with your voice. Or do you use my words? Do you use the word of God and do you establish that confession? What do you know? Do you know the gospel? Do you know what faith is? Or are you continuing to look at your faith? Or worse, your faithfulness, thinking that your assurance comes from your faithfulness. James says you know something. And James tells these people, these brothers and sisters of his who are facing incredible trials... He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All right, what is steadfastness? And I'm not going to get into all that because I don't have time. I'm going to take it slow. I'm not really going to get past this. I just want to introduce this, a launching pad, because this little thing here, it launches trials, tests, faith, produces steadfastness, steadfastness, has a full effect, which makes you perfect, which makes you complete, which allows you to lack in nothing. And that's a key word because that's the theme of this letter. He's specifically dealing with a problem of joylessness that was, listen to this, that was exacerbated by people who thought they were better than others. In a time when everybody was gone and dispersed, but there were many people who had nothing and some who had everything. And now there was disunity in the church, not because of theological divisions, but because of intimate problems. People thinking that they were better than someone else. Here, the great and good gift from the Father of lights, who never changes, gave trials to his children, who are brothers and sisters, for their joy, so that their, their faith would be tested. What is faith? Faith is confidence. Faith is assurance. Faith is knowing. Faith is being given the knowledge and the wisdom. Who is Christ Jesus? Faith knows God. Faith knows the Son of God. And we've gone through that. We've gone through all of 
Hebrews 11 and 12. And we've seen what faith is and what faith does. So faith is tested. Now here's something interesting. And you may, not, you may not see this, but I hope you do see it. As James unpacks this letter, it's very quick. It's like, boom, he starts to get a topic. Boom, another topic, another topic. He's just going very quickly. He's saying that faith is going to be tested through the trials. And he's not talking about the testing of one's understanding of doctrine. This isn't Galatia where people's faith was tested through false teaching. There's no false teaching here, just false living. No Christian living. So when James talks about faith in this verse, he's not talking about in as much as the teachings of Jesus theologically, he's talking about the commands of Jesus relationally. And that is part of your faith. Don't we use that idea in a, in a way of calling faith a noun, the faith? And so James is written in a way that is in contrast to what Paul would write to the Romans. But Paul would write to the Romans who were so inundated with the idea that they could not be as equally standing before God the Father of righteousness because they had lived lives so far away from the law of Moses, so far away from the righteous works of religion. They've lived lives so far removed from that. How could they just in a whoof be standing perfectly on the same platform as a man who was a Jew who was 80 years old? And Paul says, by faith. And in the same way, when someone says, well, I need to work harder, Romans is that letter where you go and you say, no, you don't. You have to work at all. You just rest. Resting faith. That's what God grants His people. And sometimes resting faith... Ooh, gets in the way, like 2 Thessalonians, where there's something going on there, you know, doctrinally about the second coming and the resurrection, and people just give up, and they sit on their hands, and they do nothing. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, if these people don't help and work, don't feed them. Let them go hungry. You only feed widows and children. You don't feed young widows unless they work. And you certainly don't feed a man unless he can't move to do something. He's got to do something. If you don't work, don't eat. That's sort of what Paul says. John would say in his first epistle, you know, these brothers who aren't loving and have the world's goods and they don't love their brother, this is a stupid faith. They believe what's going on here. So there's always a time where there's a testing of the faith. And when some people say, well, you know what? I don't have to listen to the instruction of the Bible because I am. I believe in sovereign grace. Free in sovereign grace. Great. Then live it out. You're commanded to live it out. Paul would write in Hebrews, you know, some of you guys who have known the sovereign and free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've known it for so long, yet you should be teaching others and living in respect to others to serve and teach each other to love and own to good service of works. 
As the Lord prepared, let's go into Ephesians for us to do before the foundation of the world. And uh, yet you aren't because you're little teeny tiny babies just whining around and playing around with words. And you need to get off your bahonkas and do something for somebody. You see, that's what, that's what, that's what Paul says. And James is, in a particular fashion, the first to introduce this idea. And so he's saying that the Lord is going to give you trials and it's going to test your faith. Of course it's going to test what you believe. Is God's, are God's promises true? Is Jesus Christ really my Savior? What, is, what we see in the apocalypse? What do they look? Lord, when? What is going on? Are we, are we going to be lost? No, we're not going to be lost. We hold fast to that. So it's, of course, what? It is truth and it is also, what? Intimacy as a body. So he says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Because as your faith is rocked, as you doubt, as you wonder if even what God has shown you is reality, God the Spirit will continue to hold you fast and you will be satisfied and you will rest in the promises of God, in the doctrines of Christ. And as you do that, and as you interact, because you see that you know the theme of the letter, right? <laughs> it's conflict. There's problems. People are not loving each other. And beloved, if there's anything that will test your faith quicker, is somebody who really upsets you. And sad to say, since January, I've been divided in this issue. My mind has been overcome. I've been giving my time to things that I should not have been giving it to for the sake of hoping to help and do some other things. And in turn, I have, done, I have, I have experienced nothing but trials. And it has strengthened. It, had, <laughs> it has tested my faith. It has not strengthened my faith. It has tested my faith. You've heard me, and, and, and Pastor Jesse tells me often through the years, stop making jokes about punching people in the throat. So this will be the one for this year, and I won't say it again. But, you know, sometimes when people test your faith, the easy remedy is just thinking, it's what you think, right? It's your anger. It's inside. But you've got such control over it because you've matured that, hmm, Praise be the Lord. You see? Isn't that special? Doesn't erase the fact that it's there. Our faith is tested in a great way when people come along and begin to conflict with our lives, conflict with our comforts, conflict with our theology, conflict with our <laughs> idealism, and everything else. Mess with our money, mess with our time, mess with our families, cost us. Then what happens? This is a gift of God that we should say, praise the Lord, what a blessing. And you know what? If I said that out loud every time I felt tested, I'd be a hypocrite. Because in the testing of your faith, you're not warm and fuzzy feeling, thinking, hobby ding dang, this is God giving me a gift. Woohoo! No, you're like, Lord, give me permission. Just one more minute, just a minute or two. You know, let me deal with this. Give me one. 
Just turn your back. Just, you know, I know it says there is no shadow with you, no variation, no change. Can you turn around just once? Just once? Let me slap some sense into him. I mean, that's how rednecks think. You know? that's, how, that's how it works. Or maybe it's not anyone in particular. Maybe it's just the whole idea of everything. Maybe it's everything that we eat and everything that we see and everything that we listen to. Anxiety for me <laughs> over the last year has been off the chain and over the last four months has been the worst it's been since I was 17 years old. And my obsessions have taken root in my brain. I probably wash my hands 40 times a day. And if you are hanging out with me, you will wash your hands 12. Because I will tell you 12 times to wash your hands. Oh, you came in from outside. Wash your hands, man. Here. Why? Because my faith is being tested. What am I scared of? Nothing. It's just what I do. It's control for me. I got it. One less thing to deal with. You know, that alien bacteria causing fungus to come out of my eyes and in my sleep. <laughs> Stupid stuff. Go ahead and call them. they got little white padded trucks that come help me. Steadfastness. You know what we want? We want steadfast. We want to be able to stand firm and stand up for ourselves. Go, I'm fine. I'm okay. You're not going to bother me. You're not hurting my feelings. You're not going to interrupt this joy. See, that's what we want. And when you act on a screen, you can put that vibe on. But when reality hits, even if we can hide the expression, the turmoil is still there. We want steadfastness. We want to be steadfast because we want other people to think. Well, they got it together. Remember what I said Sunday morning? How we act sometimes? How we're putting on a face and we don't even know it. We're just doing the motions of what society has told us to do and what the faith, what the culture in the faith has told us to do. But ultimately, steadfastness is being able not to what? See, I've heard people say, well, steadfastness is like when Peter walked on the water. He didn't walk, he sunk. That idiot got out the boat and was surprised, I think, and realized I'm walking on water and sunk. Because he wasn't walking on nothing. Now, I know that means he was walking on something, but there we go. Christ was causing him to walk on water. Christ was holding him up. The minute he thought, I'm walking on water. No, I'm not. And people will say, you got to be steadfast. You're going to be like Peter. You want to walk on water. You want to just jump on it. you got to be like Moses. Get out there and put your hands up. Let the sea come out. you got to be like so-and-so. you got to be like David. Sling that rock at the giant. Don't be like those people. They weren't faithful. Christ was faithful. And that's not what it means to be steadfast. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see that steadfastness is really looking like I'm standing here and the devil's firing arrows at me. And I'm not wearing any armor at all. I'm in Christ. 
Christ takes all the aim. Christ takes all the fire. Christ takes all the trials. Christ takes all the temptation. He's already succeeded. He's already established my righteousness. He's already done all that is required for my salvation. I am a brother of Christ, and we are brothers together in Christ. So all of these things are really just small little gifts to show us that we can stand fast in Christ and that He has not moved. And all it takes is one little thing, isn't it? One little thing. One little political speech. One little neighbor who causes trouble. One little issue in your head. And just like, oh, it can upset the apple cart. It can turn it upside down. And we run off in the ditch. And don't know how we're ever going to stand back up. Well, beloved, we're standing even when we're falling. We're standing even when we're in the ditch. We're standing even when we're groveling in the mire. We're standing when we're weeping into our pillow. We are standing when we don't even know why we came into the room because our mind is so full we don't know why we're even here. You ever been that full? And you know what doesn't work when it's spiritual? Brain dumps, organizers. Doesn't matter. What matters is that Christ is standing. Steadfastness in Christ. Knowing that God has not promised to move us out of these circumstances. God has promised He is immovable in the giving of these circumstances. I want you to see that, beloved. And I know there's a lot of stuff that I'm skipping there. Because I'm going straight from like verse 3 all the way to verse 17 in the context. Because there's some other stuff that gives the instrument through which all these songs are being played. The tempo, if you will. And look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, that goes together, beloved. It's, it's part of James' instruction here. Because everything that we have in this world, everything that we're experiencing now is nothing but fodder. It is just chaff. It will fail. It will dry up and burn. It is gone. But Christ, He remains forever. And our relationship in Him is a steadfast anchor. So our relationship together in Him should be the pinnacle of our existence pinnacle to the praise of his glorious grace so this is what the letter of James is trying to teach us and then what James is going to do and what we're going to look at over the next months is we're going to see phrase after phrase and instruction after instruction and command after command that will help us walk in this journey of trials together as a body while we are all suffering, but not because of one another. We should eliminate that. As long as it is up to us, Paul says, we should be reconciled to one another. So here are some things that James is going to do to teach us. And you're going to be surprised. He picks on, uh, and I say that because that's what somebody has told me, James just picks on a certain group of people. He doesn't pick on a certain group of people. But let me tell you something, beloved. We who have much, much is required of us. If we have certain talents and skills and wealth, more is required of us if we have 
if we have more. It's like giving an infant a balloon to blow up. They can't do it. They don't have the lung capacity. They don't have the know-how. They don't have the dexterity in their lips and jaws to push air through their lungs and esophagus in a way that could force it into a balloon. They can't. But Daddy can. Without ever taking another breath. Just one big breath. We have the capacity. Some of us have a greater responsibility to certain areas of our intimacy than others do. I have a responsibility to study and to pray and to watch out and to care and to teach. And that is my primary responsibility. And it's not just midweek and Sunday. It's every day, all the time, as I'm able, without usurping other responsibilities that I have to my home and to my health at home. And everything else can come after those two things. So nobody's off the hook. Everybody's important. Everybody's a sinner. And everybody in Christ is justified in Him alone. And He never changes. So let's listen to what James has to teach us. And let's understand it together. And let's live it together. And grow in it. Let's pray. We thank You, Father. As you'll tell us in this letter that let's not be just hearers of the word and fill ourselves up with the fullness of your glory as it is taught. But Father, let us also be doers of the word and fill our lives actively with that which is taught. Help me do this, Father. Lord, protect us from complaining and not looking at all these things as a way of strengthening us, causing us to know that you are our true anchor. So, Father, I pray for our body. I pray for every part. I pray, Father, for those precious sheep who are our peripheral brethren who sit and long to be with us. Lord, keep us patient. Keep me patient and long-suffering, and gentle, and wise. Help us to see that what we are to do requires wisdom. How we are to do it requires wisdom. The way in which we ought to walk requires wisdom. And that only is found in Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our wisdom, who is our glory. In His name we pray. Amen.